Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, help us now as we continue to worship you in the word. Draw our attention to yourself. Be glorified among us. Accomplish your will in each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 28. You probably already know this about me, but I really like the New England Patriots. Like a whole whole lot. A whole lot. But have you seen what some football fans are willing to do in order to identify with their team? You know, there's the, the casual fan who's willing to buy the team apparel, you know, whether it's a hat, a shirt, a jersey. Those are expensive things, but they're, they're just kind of a minor way in which people demonstrate their allegiance to a team. There are football fans that go to single-degree games with no shirts on. Have you seen that? You kind of think, there might be something a little off. Others will paint themselves in accordance with their team colors. Some people will, will uh, have their team logo kind of shaved into the side of their head. Some people will have their team logo, uh, logo kind of tattooed on their body somewhere. People will color their hair, all kinds of things. But there, there is one group, they stand out above all the others. These men that were willing to dress up like women, they were called the Hoggettes. There's, a, there's two of these pictures. There's one good, oh, that's, a, that's sweet right there. Talk about some loyalty to your team. Identifying with your Washington Redskins. <laughs> and um, particularly, they liked to call their offensive linemen the Hogs. So they were in the stands as Hoggettes. These were some, some hardcore fans of their team. They wanted to identify with that team. Well, you know, there, there are so many ways that this can be illustrated. There, there's one, one particular man. I want to read a, a little, just a, a brief synopsis of this one man. His name is Giles Pellerin. This is recorded in the book Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, written by Donald Whitney. He writes, Pellerin, 87 years old at the, this writing, recently attended his 700 and 50th consecutive USC football game. That's college football. 750 in a row. That's home and away. He has not missed a Trojan game, home or away, in 69 years. One year he had an emergency appendectomy just five days before a game. Still hospitalized on Saturday, he told the nurses he was going for a walk and instead went to the stadium. Why make such sacrifices to identify with an athletic team? Pellerin's answer, but that's just all part of the fun of being a fan. Well, let me just share with you something a little bit better. It's fun to be a fan. I really like, I'm a a homer. I like all the the New England teams. The New England Patriots, the Boston Celtics, the Boston Red Sox. They're doing great this year. And the Boston Bruins, also uh, these phenomenal teams. I'm a homer. I like to to identify with them. I like to to watch them. I I follow them to an extent. It's fun. But, you know, I want to tell you something far greater to identify yourself with than an athletic team. I want to tell you about someone with whom you can identify yourself that's far greater than an athletic team. His name is Jesus. You see, the concept of baptism is all about saying I am in Christ. I am united together with Him. I'm in Him. I'm with Him. He's the one I follow. 
That's what baptism is. It's all about saying, I want to be with him. And I am in him. Believer's baptism is an identifying mark of many among evangelical Christianity. Believer's baptism is the way that we allow ourselves as believers to publicly declare our identification with Jesus. And I want to remind you of something. And we're going to, we'll come across this in our reading this morning at various times, or a little later on. The Lord Jesus was willing to be baptized himself. And, and I think it's kind of a peculiar thing. So did John the Baptist. I think it was kind of a peculiar thing that Jesus would come to him to be baptized. And you'll remember the statement that Jesus made to John the Baptist. Permit it to be so, for it must fulfill all righteousness. In other words, I have to do this. And one of the things that we come to realize as we we think about the fact that Jesus was baptized, that was him saying, I'm identifying with you. He identified himself with mankind, with humanity. And we know that that ultimately he is identified with humanity on that great transaction on the cross when he became sin for us, even though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. And so Jesus identified himself with us in his baptism, and our baptism is us identifying with him. That's the concept. Now we're in Matthew chapter 28. I'd like you to take a look toward the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. What, what, a, what a great passage. We call it the Great Commission. I'll tell you a couple of reasons why it's the Great Commission. First of all, Jesus possesses all the authority in heaven and earth. He says, based upon that authority, I want you to go and make disciples. And wherever you go, I'm going with you. You go in my name, you go in my power, you go in my authority. And so a a good commission becomes a great commission because of the presence of Christ in the the distribution of that commission. Now, one of the things I'll, I'll note for you here is that the main charge in this passage is to make disciples of all the nations. And then there are some other charges that, that kind of hang on to that main one. So God says in this passage, Jesus says, hey, go make disciples everywhere, in, in every corner of the earth. Make disciples. The only way you can do that is by doing these three things. By going, go therefore, by baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So there are three elements of making disciples. Actually going... Secondly, teaching. And thirdly, baptizing. If we don't fulfill all three of those, we haven't fulfilled the main directive of the passage, which is to make disciples. In other words, the reason that I point this out is the discipleship process is not completed until we have seen Jesus' work in our own lives demonstrated in a a picture of our identification with him It's not seen in its entirety until we're distributing that message to others who then understand who Jesus is, understand what he's taught, understand the importance of what he's taught, and identify with him. Why is this so important? Well, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've realized that you're a sinner, 
and that your sin has a consequence. You've recognized that you're a sinner and that has a, a problem of separation between you and God. And then there's an eternal consequence. If, if that sin isn't rectified, there's a, a judgment day that will come. We recognize that you see yourself as a sinner. And then you've been taught, you, you recognize that God sent His only begotten Son into the world. And that God-man, Jesus, gave His life on the cross. And all of our sin that we own, all of our sin that we've committed, all of our sin that we've accrued to our own account was cast upon Him. God placed our sin on Jesus. He became sin for us, even though He knew no sin. You've recognized this. You've recognized the the payment that's been made. You recognize that Jesus substituted Himself and that when He became sin, God the Father was, was no longer pleased with God the Son. You remember this on the cross? Remember what He said? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember this. The the sky was dark. Clouds came in. The whole earth at that time, it was was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Dark. Why? Because the transaction was being made. Jesus became sin for us. God judged Him for that sin. God was pleased. God was pleased with the sacrifice. God accepted His sacrifice. In other words, when Jesus spoke the words, it is finished, something had happened. The payment has been made. God's will has been completed. Every sin of every believer of of all time has been completely removed, been paid for, been, been removed in its entirety for eternity because Jesus paid the toll. It is Finished. And you'll remember the last thing that Jesus said before he gave up his spirit. It said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he gave up the spirit. And as a result of that, we know that he went into Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He was there for parts of three days. And on that great Sunday, when the ladies went to the tomb, and then the disciples went to the tomb, guess what they found? Well, they didn't find Jesus. Why? Because God raised him up. What was that significant about? Well, not only had Jesus overcome death, Jesus had overcome sin, Jesus had overcome Satan. In addition to those great truths, anyone that is identified with Him, anyone that comes into a a relationship with Him, anyone that has saving faith in Christ, they also will be raised up, never to die again. This is, this is the glory of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. So let's say you've come to this saving realization that you're a sinner, but Jesus paid the price for your sin, and Jesus' uh, penalty was enough to, to cover your sin and to remove your sin forever. And by having faith in Christ alone, you have life forevermore. You've come to this, this realization. That's the beginning of the discipleship process. That discipleship process continues by learning what He has said, And that discipleship process continues as you are willing to publicly identify with him through baptism and then tell others about this very same thing. The essential is is reduplicating. We can't make the duplication. We're just telling them. Telling them of Jesus. Telling of what Jesus has done. When we look at the Great Commission, it's not complete without baptism. So maybe you've 
you've been saved for years, but you have not been baptized. That doesn't mean you're not saved. We'll talk about that. I'm not saying, oh, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's not the point. The point is the discipleship process isn't complete until you have publicly identified yourself in believer's baptism. So, let's go through this. We have a number of passages we want to consider in the the next 25 to 30 minutes. Take a look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The first concept we want to note is this. The believer must be baptized. Being baptized does not make one a believer. But the believer must be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, we have this incredible beginning of the the church as we understand it. The Spirit of God comes upon those that had trusted Christ as their Savior. Some uh, sign gifts took place where people were speaking in languages that they didn't know themselves. They were speaking in other languages coming out, just a miraculous sign gift from the Spirit. The, The crowd is very curious, and Peter preaches this message about how the people of Israel had rejected Jesus, their Messiah, and their response to him at the end of verse 37 was, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Why did they ask that question? The Spirit of God was at work in them. The Word of God was working in them. They recognized, yeah, what you're saying, Peter, is is true. We were involved in crucifying the Messiah. Now what? What do we do about it? And Peter gives them a very straightforward answer. Verse 38, he says this, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's his response. Repent. There's there's the the first concept. Repent. Linguistically, from the the point of, of language, really what we could read is repent, for the remission of sins. And then we have in between there another command. It's not, not a command. It is a command. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But the, the concept is repent for what? For the remission of sin. What is repentance? Repentance is, okay, I see myself. I see that I've, I've caused a problem. That's the Jews recognized that they crucified the Messiah. That's what they had come to. What do we do? And he says, repent, you see your sin. To turn from your sin and toward, toward what? Nothing? It's not like turn over a new leaf, like my uh, principal in my elementary days told me one time, you need to turn over a new leaf, Robert. (laughs) And he did this. He kind of took his fingers and he was doing this at me. I didn't like that at all. But it's not to turn over a new leaf. It's to turn away from our sin and ourselves as a solution for our sin. And it's to turn to Christ whom they had crucified. Turn to Christ. So repent is to turn away from us and turn toward Him. That's to repent. And what happens, it's for the remission of sin. But He also, as part of this concept, says, let every one of you be baptized. See, some people take this and say baptism is necessary for salvation. That's not the way it reads in the language. If you know Greek, it doesn't mean that. But it also doesn't say, cross that out like it doesn't appear there. And I think that's one of the the errors that we make as, as students, well, it, it certainly can't be talking about baptismal regeneration for X, Y, and Z reason. We'll talk about them in a few moments. So, so let's just ignore that. We can't ignore the words of God, right? It's the word of God for a reason. And so if it's there, we must understand it. 
And so what he's telling us is, repent for the remission of sin, and also let everyone know about it. That's the identification part. He tells them to, to do this. Every one of you. Look down at verse 41. I wonder what they did. Verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were what? <laughs> they were baptized. So, so they actually recognized that this remedy was the right remedy. It was a remedy from God, and so they acted upon it. They were baptized, and that day, about 3,000 souls, 3,000 souls were added to them. That's incredible. These are Jewish people that had rejected the Messiah. They didn't want to hear from the Messiah. God brings the word to them, and they say, you're right, what do we do? They were given the solution, and they followed through. Repent, and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of sin. And so they followed through. Take a look at chapter 8 now. Again, we're, we're underneath this concept, the believer must be baptized. Again, I'm not saying baptism makes a believer. I'm saying a believer must be baptized. You see the distinction? Important to make that distinction. Acts chapter 8, please, and verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So he's preaching. They believe the message. And what was their response? They were baptized. Take a look at chapter 9, please. Chapter 9. The first number of verses are actually describing Saul's interaction with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The end result of that conversation is, what do you want me to do? Same thing as the Jews in Acts chapter 2. What do you want me to do? And so Jesus tells him what to do, and he, he, he sends him off to Damascus, and he meets this man, Ananias. And in verse 18, please, verse 18, immediately there fell from his eye something like scales, and he received his sight at once. Listen. And he arose and was baptized. He arose and was baptized. How soon was this? Well, he met Jesus, and he went to Damascus, it probably took a while because he couldn't see. <laughs> Why couldn't he see? Because he had an encounter with Jesus and uh, that, that it tends to mark you. And he makes it to Damascus and the first thing after he receives his sight, he's baptized. Take a look a little further. Chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Beginning in verse 47. Now, in previous verses to this, we see Peter dealing with a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile. He's called a God-fearer. He believed in the, the God of the Israelites, but he just didn't want to be circumcised. You can take a couple of guesses as to why he wouldn't want to do that. I'll leave that with you. Um, P, uh, Peter deals with him, showing him the Scriptures. At the end of that account, we see the, the Spirit of God coming upon some Gentiles. And now verse 47. Acts 10, verse 47. Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So you're seeing the pattern? You're seeing the pattern? Someone believes. And what do they do in response? They're baptized. What I'll note to you in this particular account, Acts chapter 10, before they're baptized, they receive the Spirit. The Spirit comes into the life, 
the Spirit indwells the life of the one who trusts in Jesus Christ. The one who has encountered the Gospel understands that Jesus is the solution for their sin and that Jesus gives life and He gives it eternally and abundantly. When a person comes to that place, they receive the Spirit. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. It will be on the screen behind me. The Bible says, In Him, speaking about Jesus, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed, sealed, that means God writes His signature on you, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. You know what that passage just said? When you trust Jesus, God signs His name on you by placing His Spirit in you. He says, you're mine, you're mine. And listen, Can you wrestle something away from God? Can anyone wrestle something away from God? It's impossible. It doesn't happen. So when God puts His signature on you and says, hey, you're mine, that never changes. The Spirit comes into someone. And what happened in Acts chapter 10 is they saw that these people were believers because the Spirit came upon them. How they saw this visibly, that, that's another story for another day. It's for, from a, things that happened in those early days that God was making very evident when the Spirit would come. He, they see this, and the first thing they do is they're baptized. Take a look at one more passage on this particular portion of our discussion. Acts chapter 16. Vital importance this passage is to our discussion, and we read it earlier in our responsive reading. It's an incredible account. Paul and Silas were were representing God, preaching the gospel, and in the process of preaching the gospel, they were taken off, put in prison, and their response was to sulk in a prison cell. No. Nope. That was that's a different version. Our version tells us that they were singing praises to God. Take a look at verse twenty five. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. Listen, if you're chained and an earthquake takes place, the chains might fall off the wall, but they don't fall off your hands. They don't fall off your feet. So if you're chained, it's great that they fell off the wall, but they don't fall off your hands. But here we have something supernatural. Not only the, the earthquake supernatural, but the chains falling off supernatural. This is, this is, pretty, this is pretty, uh, pretty powerful. Verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prisoner doors open, supposed that the prisoners had fled. He drew his sword. Why? He was going to kill the prisoners? No, he was going to kill himself. Why? Because he knew, these prisoners are gone, my life will be held accountable, I want to take my matters into my own hands. That's what he says. But Paul sees this happening, and what does he say? Verse 28, but Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's true for you and it's true for your household because it's true for everybody. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. It's true about you, your brother, your sister, your mama, your papa, your great-granddaddy. It's true for everyone. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. But what is very instructive to us, beyond that glorious truth, is what happens next. Verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes. Listen carefully. And immediately, he and his family were baptized. Okay. Interesting. And here, some make an argument from silence. You ready for this? Listen carefully. Some make an argument from silence. Hey, the Philippian jailer's whole household got got baptized. There had to be babies. That's what they say. There had to be babies. So infant baptism is, is in the scriptures. There it is. They're in Acts chapter 16. That's what they say. I want to talk about this for just a moment. I'll give you a little illustration. And then, and then I want to read the rest of the passage. Because the rest of the passage helps us to understand this rather clearly. My son, Asa, is two. And he sings all the time. And he hums all the time. I'll, I'll just share some of the words that he sings. Just the other day, he, was, he came out of a room and he was like, Christ is enough for me. I was thinking, yeah, you go, Asa, bring it. Another time, all I have is Christ, as he's singing. All I have is Christ. The other day, for a long time, he's been, been humming this one. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full. And just yesterday at the table, we're eating lunch together. And he started to hum the words to, you have made, well, he didn't hum the words, he hummed the tune of, you made us your own. That's so sweet, but he's not a Christian. He doesn't know Jesus as a Savior. He doesn't know who Jesus is. We're trying to teach him who Jesus is. We want him to know who Jesus is. We want him to know that Christ is enough and that, that everything we have and everything we are and our whole hope is fixed upon Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus as his Savior. He doesn't realize that he's a sinner. Now, could I, could I say, hey, you know, Asa, I want to have a conversation with you. Do you want to go to heaven someday? What's heaven? Well, heaven is where Jesus is. You want to be with Jesus forever? Yeah. Listen, Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Just let's pray and ask Jesus to save you. And we're like, yeah, I'll, I'll pray that. He doesn't understand. It's cute. I like him singing it because it, it'll be fresh in his brain. It'll continue to be on his brain. But he's not saved. Listen to what it says in verse 34. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, listen carefully, having believed in God with all his household. Listen, everyone that was baptized that day in, in the Philippian jailer's household, everyone that was baptized had already believed. They had believed, which means they, they had to be over two because a two-year-old doesn't know how to believe except to believe everything or believe nothing depending on their mood. Think about it. When did you start to have a mind of your own to believe something? To say, oh yes, I recognize my sin is an offense to God. My sin has separated me from my God. I, I, I have a judgment hanging over my head. But yes, Jesus became sin for me that I might have life. When, when were you able to come to that comprehension? It's, listen, some people say they've been saved at four, five, six, seven, and I'm not going to dispute that. A, a four-year-old can start to get those concepts. 
So maybe you were four, maybe you were five, maybe you were 20, maybe you were 30, maybe you were 60. Maybe you haven't come to that place yet. But what I will tell you is this passage gives us an example. You know what that is? When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the next step is to be baptized. Because God's called for the discipleship process to not only include embracing the gospel, but to publicly identify yourself I'm with him. What he did when he died on the cross, I was in him when he hung there. When, when he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, I was in him. When God raised him up, I was in him. And I want you to know what God has done in my life. He's crucified my sin. He's set it aside. He's judged my sin in Christ. And he's given me life through Christ. I want you to know this. I'm not a better person. I'm not a good person. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and what he's done is enough to save my soul. That's what we say when we're being baptized. The believer must be baptized. I want to just quickly, not that it's unimportant, but I'm not sure how many people would struggle with this concept. I want to, to put a, a little bit of a, a disclaimer here with point number two. Listen carefully. Baptism is powerless to save. Water, whether it be poured on you, or as the biblical model is, if you're immersed in it or submerged in it and come out of it, that water will not save you. It doesn't save you. It can't save you. Only God saves through Christ. So baptism in itself is powerless to save. Now, why do I say this? Because we have such a a strong passage that we already read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 that says, Repent and be baptized, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. It's such a strong statement. And and then in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, Peter again is the one who this time pens it before he spoke it. The, The concept is that in like figure, baptism also saves you. He says in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, that's, that's, a, that's a very strong statement, isn't it? Jesus is the one who saves us through the waters of baptism, but it's not the waters that purify the flesh, he says. It's not the washing away of the dirt of the flesh or the filth of the flesh. It's, it's the, the ark who is Jesus that saves us. Now how can I be so confident reading those two strong passages that baptism isn't a requirement for salvation? Well, I want you to turn to another passage in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. And I'll remind you of who is speaking in Acts chapter 3. His name is Peter. So, in Acts 2 and 1 Peter 3, Peter is the spokesman or the penman. And these are the two passages that that those that believe that baptism saves a person will cling to, to preach that baptism saves. And I want to use Peter the one who is the spokesman and the penman of those, to clarify this. This is just the next chapter in your Bible from Acts 2. Very close in proximity of time. And now I want you to just think, I want you to think logically. Use your brain. If you believe, you're the preacher, you're the preacher right now, you believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, okay? And you give a gospel message, would you say, oops, I forgot that part? Would you? You wouldn't. If you think that baptism is necessary for salvation, you're not going to leave it out of a, a message by mistake. Look at what it says here in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. 
He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven and earth or excuse me, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets, his holy prophets since the world began. You can keep reading, and he doesn't talk about baptism. I will remind you that this is inspired. The inspired text doesn't forget things. Am I correct? The one who inspires is God, and God doesn't have a memory problem. So when Peter preaches this message, he's telling them this is what's necessary for salvation. The Apostle Paul, a prominent figure obviously in the New Testament church, and in the the spread of biblical Christianity, he lists requirements for baptism. We already read it in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. Remember what it was? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he says, With the heart man believes unto salvation, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no baptism there. You come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through 4, He says, I declare to you the gospel. I want you to know the gospel because I want you to hold on to that gospel. I don't want you to be moved from that gospel. And he tells them the gospel. You know what it is? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's not the right verse. Let me get there so I don't misquote it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also proclaimed or received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Guess what? He gives the Gospel with no baptism. So, we don't have a conflicted Bible. We don't have a a Bible at odds with itself. What we have is some clarification. Baptism demonstrates salvation. It doesn't procure or obtain salvation. So we recognize that the Savior is Jesus. We trust in Jesus as our Savior. He saves us. The Spirit indwells us. And then, as a result of that, as a step of obedience as a believer, what we say is, I want to identify publicly with Him. So we we portray that. So here's what we want to talk about next, and that's this. What does baptism look like? What does baptism look like? We need to do this quickly. We only have a few minutes left. In John chapter 3 and verses 22 and 23, we don't need to turn there. I'm just going to tell you what it says in in essence. John the Baptist is is performing his ministry, and his ministry is 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 a ministry of baptism. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is his message. And he would baptize people. And he found a particular location, and he chose it based upon this fact. There was much water there. Now, you don't need a whole lot of water to sprinkle, and you don't need a whole lot of water to pour water over someone. But you do need a whole lot of water. If you're going to baptize someone, placing them under the water and bringing them out of the water, that you can't do in a puddle. You need a lot of water. So he looked for uh, just the right place. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about the word baptize. It comes from the Greek word. This is, this is very complex. You'll, you would never have guessed that this was the Greek word for baptism. Ready? For baptize. Ready? Baptizo. I bet you that everyone could learn that word today. Baptizo. You want to know why it's so easy to learn? Because it's not a translated word. It's actually what's called a transliteration. They didn't say, all right, we've got the Greek word baptizo. Let's figure out, well, let's write submerge. Let's write immerse. Let's write, this is my favorite definition, marinate. (laughs) I love that one. Um, They didn't do that because the one who was behind the 
writing of the King James wanted it to be transliterated because he believed in infant baptism. So he just wanted the word baptism or baptizo to be transliterated so it really didn't have a definition. But the reality is the word baptizo means to submerge, to immerse, or to marinate. It's the, the actually one of the, one of the, the word pictures is to take pickles and put them in the vinegar, is to marinate them. Now I can promise you I will not marinate anyone during a, during a baptism service because it takes a little while and you won't be able to breathe under there. So it's, it's the concept of, of immersion or submersion underneath the water. In Matthew chapter 3, take a look beginning in verse 13. I made reference to this earlier. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now. Very authoritative. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John the Baptist, allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now listen, I just, just, just picture the scene. It says, Jesus came up out of the water. Well, does that mean he's like stepping? You, you know, you, you could get that, like he's down in the water and he's stepping up. He comes up out of the water. But where are his eyes when he's coming up out of the water? They're straight ahead. However, if he's baptized, submerged, or immersed, when he's coming up out of the water, guess where his eyes are headed? To the sky. And when he's coming up out of the water, he looked toward heaven and saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove upon him. So we have a biblical illustration of what baptism looks like. The word itself means to be submerged. We have, I think, ample evidence though there is much more that we could use for argumentation. The term baptized means to immerse. The example of different baptisms, which we could go through a couple of others. But even more, when we come to what the message of baptism is, it's so telling. Because baptism is showing us of our identification with something specific about Jesus. It's not identifying with his earthly ministry, his healing the lame, his preaching great messages, him feeding the 5,000. It's not picturing that. It pictures a death and a burial and a resurrection. So the, the picture of baptism itself tells you what the mode really ought to look like. What does baptism look like? It looks like a death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Brian already read to start our service that passage in Romans chapter 6, which really is a reference to spirit baptism, but the picture is still there of us dying with Christ and being raised to newness of life. So that's what baptism looks like. Last point, and and I want for us to mull it over for just a moment, what is the purpose of baptism? Well, first of all, it's symbolism. I've been trying to point us to that. It is an outward display of an inward reality. You've already come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've already recognized that He is life. Your sin is removed by Him. He gives you eternal righteousness that gives you a standing with God. And so what you're recognizing that this has already happened. When I trusted Christ as my Savior, I was buried with Him. I, I, was, I, was, I died with Him. I was buried with Him. And I rose again with Him. That's what happened when, as soon as I placed my faith in Him. I, I'm, I'm united together in Him. So it's the symbolism demonstrating outwardly what has happened inwardly. 
Secondly, what the purpose of baptism is, is it's a public testimony showing, again, externally what has happened internally. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Later in the same passage, down in verse 21, it says, For God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. Think about this. This is exactly what baptism is picturing. When you're being baptized, you're saying, Listen, I'm dead to myself and I'm alive to God. My old man, well, it kind of rears its ugly head every now and then. He's dead. My real life, who I really am, who I'll be for eternity, is united together with Christ. I'm a new creation. A third purpose of baptism is obedience. We already saw it in Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 2. Finally, identification. And I've, I've been bringing that to you over and again. So I, I think you've got that point by now. I was in Christ when he was crucified when he was buried, when he was raised to life. His resurrection promises my resurrection. Oh, I love that thought. Because I know he's been raised. He's the first fruits of them who slept in Jesus. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Such a happy thing. Listen, you may identify as a husband. You may identify as a wife. You may find your identity as being a father or as a mother. Some people even find their identity in being a New York Jets fan. I don't know why someone would do that, but some people do. You can identify with being an American, a United States sailor, or Marine, or soldier, or airman, or Coast Guardsman, but there's nothing in this world like identifying yourself with the one who first identified himself with you when he took your sin on him and gave it all that we might have life, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have peace with God. He endured our punishment. There's nothing like identifying with him. The biblical way to identify yourself with him is through baptism as a believer. It's a public proclamation of your already experienced and established faith. It's essentially you saying, I'm with him. So I ask you this question. What prevents you from being baptized? What prevents you from being baptized? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? If you have and you have not been baptized subsequent to that, after that salvation, it's the very next logical step when you're confronted with this truth, when you are encouraged, I hope, by this truth to say, yeah, I've trusted Christ. I want to tell everyone what my life is like and who I identify with. What prevents you from being baptized? I'd say there should be nothing. There should be nothing that would prevent you from being baptized. And I challenge you when we, I'm going to pray in a moment. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to pray one more time. Um, when this service concludes, if you have, are a believer and you have not been baptized and you'd like to do that, I ask you to come down to the front, not because we're going to talk about you or salute you or anything. We're just, I'm just going to write down your name that you want to be baptized and you'll, in, in the next uh, month or so, we're going to have a baptism service at the church and we'll have you as a part of that. It'll be a glorious opportunity for you to say, yeah, I'm with him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your constant love care and affection for us. Thank you for what Jesus has done. Thank you for the privilege of being able to identify with him and the amazing truth that he first identified with us 
willing to bear our sin and your judgment against our sin so we would never endure a second, not even a second, of judgment. We rejoice in you. We love you because you first loved us. And we thank you for your word, for your spirit, and for your son. Help us now that we would humble ourselves before you, allowing you to do your work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.